God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that uh, he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating uh, that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth, of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion, or the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals And all the birds in the sky, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh 
she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So Carl, we look forward to your sharing this morning. Well, good morning. Uh, If you're a visitor here this morning, it's nice to have you uh, with us. Uh, As Eric said, we began last week a series on the book of Genesis. Uh, I discovered uh, this week and and even just now as we were reading that, the flaw in my plan in studying the book of Genesis, and that is that the ribbon, I don't know if you noticed, but the ribbon just doesn't work at the beginning of the Bible. It just, it never sits in there. Um, I don't know... (laughs) So if I seem a bit distracted this morning, uh, that's the ribbon isn't sitting straight. Uh, so just some big issues happening up here. But we're, um, we're studying the book of Genesis. We're beginning the year at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, and, and last week uh, we looked at the creation of the universe, how God created the universe. Uh, and today we're asking an important follow-up question to that. And that is... What is the place of human beings in that universe that God created? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be human? Are we just glorified animals? Are we special or are we ordinary? Are we just slaves built by God to do God's dirty work so that God can kind of put up his feet and relax? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 Uh, answers those questions for us. At one level, the picture of humanity that emerges from these two chapters is one where human beings are in some sense the same as every other animal. In chapter 1, human beings are made on the same day, on day 6, the same day as all the other animals that live on the land. In chapter 2, we're told that Adam is made from the dust of the earth. He's made from, if you like, the same matter, the same stuff as everything else in all creation. So in one sense, human beings are no different from the creatures uh, and every other created thing. And yet we're also told that human beings are unique and special. In chapter 1, verse 26, we get the first counsel of God. God uh, speaks uh, among himself. He says, uh, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God makes human beings in his image and in his likeness. If the Bible didn't say that, it would sound, I think, almost blasphemous. After all, the rest of the Bible tells us not to try and make anything in the image of God. And yet here at the very beginning of the Bible, God makes human beings in his own image. There's something very, very special about human beings. But what is it? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's at least four things, I think, which this passage tells us, uh, four ways that it fills out 
what it means to be made in the image of God. First of all, human beings are made in the image of God in that we are made to rule over creation. So 1 verse 26 again, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Or 1 verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. The other animals are told to be fruitful and increase in number in verse 22. But only the human beings, only the humans are told to subdue creation and to rule over it. Just as God rules over creation, so God made us to rule over his creation under him. Now the words in verse uh, one, uh, in chapter one, verse twenty-eight, uh, "rule and subdue." Those words might sound a bit heavy-handed uh, to some people, but what they mean, I think, is borne out in the next chapter, in in chapter two, in verse fifteen, where it says, "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it." That is, what does it mean to rule over creation and to subdue it? It means to work it and to take care of it. Those are the two aspects of our rule over God's creation uh, which God uh, works out, working and taking care of creation. First of all, then, we're made in the image of God in that we take care of God's creation just as God takes care of the creation as well. You see that, an example of that in chapter 2 when God brings the animals before Uh, Adam so that he can name them. He's looking after them. He's taking care of them. He's naming them, giving them names. Uh, And and that idea of ruling over creation uh, is something that I think we have an instinctive awareness for. Our our responsibility for creation is something that we feel deeply. Now, I think I have the figures right. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but but I think it's right that between 2006 and 2013, $15 million was spent by the Save the Devil program in response uh, to the Tasmanian devil facial tumour disease, which is wiping out the devil population. That's an incredible amount of money, really, isn't it? $15 million uh, over that period of time. Why do people feel responsible? Why do people feel the need to spend that much money to save uh, an animal? The tumours aren't caused by human beings. They're naturally occurring at contagious cancer. And yet we feel responsible to do something about it. Why is that? People spend extra money to buy eggs from manufacturers that look after their hens. Why do people do that? Why not treat animals just like they're a production line? Why do people care? We find a deserted uh, wallaby in the backyard, sort of a baby uh, wallaby in the backyard, and we want to look after it. We find an injured bird, and we take it to the vet. We find a beached whale, and we want to get it back into the ocean. And when we can't, we get upset. It makes us sad. Why do we do that? Why in a world that believes in the survival of the fittest do we do that? It doesn't make sense. 
You see, the prevailing explanation for the great beauty and the diversity that we see around us is that the weak, unsustainable species have died out, leaving the more successful species to thrive. That's the explanation for the world that we see, for the beauty and the diversity that we see. That's the explanation that pervades our society. And in that context, helping sick animals doesn't make any sense. It's a move against the evolutionary pressures. You can maybe understand people who are working to combat uh, human impact, you know, so working against the, uh, the decimation of the Great Barrier Reef uh, through things like dredge spoil or whatever it might be. Or you can imagine people working hard, fighting hard to save whales from being slaughtered. You can imagine people working against human impact. But even there, the underlying worldview would suggest that if the whales can't keep up with human progress, it's their fault. Adapt or, or, or get out of town. Science can account for our similarity to the rest of creation, but what it can't do is account for our deeply felt sense of responsibility. We care about things. Imperfectly, yes, but we care and we care deeply. Why is that? The Bible gives us an answer and the answer is it's because we've been made in the image of God. Our sense of responsibility for the world is ingrained by God in us. So that's the first way that human beings are made in the image of God. We're made to rule God's creation by caring for it. The second way in which we are made in the image of God, is that we're made to rule over God's creation by working and developing it. Just as God created the world, God made us to work and develop and create in the world that he created. He created out of nothing. We don't do that. But we do create things out of the world that he has created for us. There's a sense in these chapters that through, uh, sorry, that though the creation was, uh, was good, though God created the world good, there's a sense in which the creation was still incomplete. There's a sense in which God left things still to be done. He says to the animals, fill the earth and subdue it. He says to the human beings, fill the earth, uh, sorry, he says to the animals, fill the earth and multiply He says the same thing to the humans. He says to us, rule and subdue, work and develop. The creation was good, but God left things for human beings to do. It's often been noted uh, that while the Bible begins in a garden, it ends in a city. Genesis gives us the Garden of Eden. And Revelation gives us the vision of a city descending from God. A city in a garden, but a a city nonetheless. There's this sense of development. There's this trajectory from a garden to a city. It's not an accident. It's a fulfilment of what God made us to do. God made us to, to work and develop his creation. We've been made in God's image, made to create just as God created. It's certainly something, I think, which distinguishes us from the other animals, Uh, Other animals do beautiful things. 
I don't know if you've seen that, uh, that series, uh, Planet Earth, with, uh, by, what's his name, David Attenborough. And they go, I think it's in the Pacific somewhere, and they, they uh, video those birds of paradise. Uh, and they're just inc- incredible and a little hysterical at times. But these amazing birds that make these amazing uh, nests and do these amazing uh, kind of uh, mating dances and all kinds of things to uh, attract uh, their partner. It's incredible. Animals do amazing things, beautiful things. But only human beings develop the world. Only human beings advance. Only human beings get smarter, research things, build higher, explore space. You can see already in the beginning of Genesis those things starting to happen. Uh, If you've still got your Bible there, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. We read there, uh, Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain uh, was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. And then in verse 20, Adar gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Already we see people developing the, the world that God created. Cain built a city. Jabal raised livestock. Jubal developed the harp and the flute. I don't know why you would do that, uh, why you would make the harp and the flute. If you were going to make an instrument, you'd think you'd make a trombone, for instance. Uh, That would be a good thing to make. Tubal Cain uh, forged tools out of iron and bronze. As human beings, we build. We build civilizations. We build cities. We build public spaces. One of the great gifts of the Victorian age, actually, is uh, large public spaces. Uh, Launceston is the beneficiary of that idea. My sister always bemoans that uh, Wollongong doesn't have the the same beautiful public spaces uh, that uh, Launceston has. We design and build buildings. We make planes to cut the travel times. Boats to travel the sea, submarines to explore the depths of the ocean, spacecraft to explore the reaches of outer space. We train animals to help us with things. People train dogs to herd sheep or to help the blind. People still use horses in farming or cattle to plough fields. We write music and make musical instruments. Bach, Handel, Tchaikovsky, Dire Straits, Pink Floyd, U2, Coldplay, even, even Justin Bieber. They're all doing what God made us to do. Even even Bieber is doing what God made us to do. And as we sing in church, we're working and using the creation that God created us to use. We make films and write stories. We paint pictures. We're not Rembrandts, most of us. Maybe more Picasso or something like that. But when we do things like that, we're creating and making, reflecting the way that God 
created and made. Beautiful things like the opera house don't just glorify the architects and the craftsmen. They glorify God because it was God who made those people who architected that building, who crafted it by hand. Monet's landscapes glorify God because those skills in making and creating reflect our creating God. Charles will never forgive me if I didn't mention Yasha Heifetz, the great violinist. His skill in playing and making music glorified God because he was a man made and created in the image of God, a God who creates and makes as well. We are in the image of God because God is a creator and he has made us to be sub-creators under him. Sometimes we make the mistake, I think, of believing that work is a curse and that redemption means a public holiday, a permanent public holiday. But that's not how God made us. God made us to work, to build, to create. And when we do that, we reflect God and we glorify him. The first way that human beings are made in the image of God is that we're made to rule God's creation by caring for it. The second way that we're made in the image of God is that we're made to rule by working God's creation. And I think that twofold pattern is helpful for us to keep in mind because it remedies some of the excesses of our age. Sin means that some people are all about working the creation and don't care at all about caring for it. They pillage and they destroy rather than harness what God has made to create things of beauty. Others are all about care to the extent that you can't touch anything. There's no place for working, just looking. It's like going to a museum. The the creation is just a museum piece to be observed but not touched. But the Bible says that God made us to do both, to harness the creation lovingly and carefully to make things of great beauty. We, well, we reflect God by ruling and working and caring. Thirdly, we also reflect God, we're also made in the image of God in that we rest. On the seventh day after God had finished the busy work of creating, he rested. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. In the rest of the Bible, uh, God's pattern of work and rest becomes a pattern of work and rest for human beings as well. So in Exodus 20, God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, neither do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's not so much you see in the light of Genesis 1, it's not so much that we're commanded to rest, 
No, it's that we were made for rest. To fail to rest is actually not just foolish, it's somehow subhuman. It's a rejection of the way that we were made to reflect God. It's a, it's a, it's a rejection, uh, too, of one of God's most precious gifts to us. When I was, uh, when I was at university during the exam period, I would work probably harder than I worked during the semester, uh, you know, and, and I'd get up and I'd work from about 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night or something like that and just study for, for that uh, block of time. But Sunday was always a day off. Didn't matter if there was an exam on Monday. It never mattered. Sunday was always a day of guilt-free rest. It was brilliant. It kept me sane, I think. I would watch my, my friends who weren't Christians, who were, who were working non-stop, just fade over that four-week period. They just lose the energy. It kept me fresh. You see, rest is a good gift from God. And the failure to rest, I think, is one of the great sins of our age. Even when we rest, we're not resting. We're ticking jobs off our to-do list. Sometimes I wake up on Saturday morning with as many things to get done. Saturday's the day I, I take off. Sometimes I wake up on Saturday with as many things to get done as I do any other day of the week. Sometimes our failure to rest stems from our failure to grasp that we're not God. God never slumbers or sleeps, but we need to. And we read the stories of people like Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill who slept, you know, four hours a night and we think, that could be me. And we try... And for most of us, it doesn't work. We forget that God doesn't take time off every week, but we need to. And in fact, resting is an expression of our trust in God. It's an expression of the belief that God can keep the world turning, even when we're not working. And God can keep the world turning even when our eyes are closed. To rest one day in seven is not just a good idea, it's actually part of the pattern, it's part of the way that we were made to reflect God. Interestingly, in the uh, French Revolution, in the move away from Christianity and in their devotion to, uh, to reason, they tried to move to a ten-day work week, nine days on, one day off. It didn't work. Uh, and they tried the same in, in Soviet Russia. They, well, they tried... Are both a five-day week and a six-day week, and neither of them held. There seems to be something about this, this pattern of six days and a, and a day of rest. We fail to realise that we were made to rest, but what we also fail to realise, I think, is we fail to grasp what, what is truly restful. So when God rested, he didn't rest because he was tired, he didn't get to the end of the creation where he can sort of think to himself, well, I'm glad that's over. Uh, in resting, what he was doing was stopping to appreciate what he had done. Sometimes people say that rest is just doing something different. 
So if you work in an office during the week, that then, then resting can include mowing the lawn. Well, maybe it can, but I'm not convinced. That's not what God did on the day that he rested, is it? What God did on the seventh day is he stopped, he looked, he enjoyed, and he celebrated all that he had done. That's rest, you see. <laughs> not to be entertained. That's not the heart of rest. But to rest is to stop and to look and to celebrate, to look back on what God has done and what, on what God has enabled you to do. When was the last time you, 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 you said this? Lord, thank you for this past week. Thank you that on Monday, you know, we could do this and on Tuesday we could do that as a family and we go to such and such. And Thank you that this week I could finish off that job that I've been working on for six months. Man, I've been tearing my hair out. But thank you that I could get it done. And thank you that it turned out well and that it looks good and that the people that I, that I made it for are happy with it. Thank you, too, that even though there were lots of things that I didn't get finished, thank you that I could still put in effort in getting them done. And thank you that you've given me the gifts to do it, to do this work. Thank you that you've given me the ability to be a good plumber, a good mum, a good teacher. See, that's restful. (laughs) To get to the end of the week and to look back and say, thank you, Lord, Thank you that you've enabled me to reflect you, caring and creating in the world that you care for and you created. But rest isn't just about what God has done in and through us. It's also about what God has done and is doing in the world and what God has done in Jesus. One of the most important things that we do now in this time together is we look back. We look back to what God has done And we train ourselves to keep looking back. Because unless we train ourselves to keep looking back, we don't notice, we don't stop, we don't see. Sunday is like the school of worship and the school of rest. All of life is worship, yes. But the worship that we do when we gather here together in some ways trains us for the worship and the rest that we do in the rest of the week. But the catch is this, I think. That reflective, thankful worshipping requires stopping and slowing down. If you don't stop, you don't notice. If you don't stop, you don't reflect. If you don't notice and reflect, you can't worship. I think so often we're so afraid of boredom that we never stop or slow down to reflect. We're addicted to to entertainment and to activity. And because of that, we never really rest. We never really think. We never really worship. We were made to work and care. We were also made to rest. Last of all, we were also made to relate to God. I don't know if that's really part of what it means to be made of the image of God or whether it's an implication of that. I'm not sure. But we certainly get a clear picture in these chapters that human beings have a special relationship with God that no other animal, no other created thing has. God speaks to Adam. And as you move into chapter 3, as God speaks, Adam and Eve speak back to God. 
You see them relating to God, not as some kind of distant deity, but you see them relating to God as you would relate to a friend. You see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You see, we weren't just made to exist, to do, to work, to rest. We were made to know God, to speak to God, to be spoken to, to walk with God in the cool of the day. Knowing God is the pinnacle of our existence. But it's also, if you like, the part of the world which God created that is so obviously broken by sin. It's hard reading Genesis 1 and 2 not to feel a bit nostalgic, I think. It's a bit like looking back at an old family photo album and seeing the days of youthfulness and longing for those better days. Reading Genesis 1 and 2 is a bit like that. Genesis 1 shows the world that God created. But all those things are distorted by sin now. We try and rule over God's creation, but we try and do that not under God. We try and do it in our own way. We try and rule God's creation without God. We rule over creation, but we kind of either neglect it or we destroy it. We create, but the things that we create are marred by sin. (laughs) Every time I try and make something, it never turns out as well as I hoped. And the moment that you finish it, it already starts to break apart. We're made to know God intimately, and yet God is unseen. And so many people don't know God. And God speaks to them and they don't hear. We were made in God's image, but that image was marred by sin. When Adam and Eve rejected God, all those things, all those beautiful things were turned upside down, not so that they can't be seen anymore. We still catch those glimpses, don't we? but they were turned upside down. The image of God was not eradicated, but it was smudged, blurred. And just like looking back at those old photos, it's easy to see where we were. It's easy to remember what it was like, but it's hard to find a way back to those happier days. Musing on that theme, the writer of Hebrews says, we can see what God designed us to be, but we don't see that as a reality anymore. But what we do see is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who was made a little lower than the angels, who became one of us. Jesus now crowned with glory and honour. Jesus who came to destroy death and sin and decay so that he could remake us in his image, to remake us to what we ought to be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, just as we've been made like Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
Genesis 1 and 2 shows us what it is to be created in the image of God. It's a beautiful thing. But we're not as we should be. But the good news is that Jesus is what we should be. And he'll remake his people to be like him. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing mercy to us. That you care for us. That you made us to be in your image, to reflect you, to glorify you in the things that we do, the things that we make, the way that we care for your world. Lord, thank you that those things have not been lost by sin. Though they're smudged, Lord, thank you that we can still see them. Thank you that we can still see, even in the people who reject you and deny you, thank you that we can still see in them the way that they reflect you and your glory. Thank you that we can still see in them the wonderful gifts that you've given them to make and to create as sub-creators under you. Thank you for the way that we can see in people their great care and sense of responsibility that they have for the world. A care and responsibility which mirrors your incredible love and care for our world. Lord, thank you that we can see in each person that you have made glimpses of your glory and your greatness. And yet, Lord, we know that all those things are smudged and marred by sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who came, Lord, to be as one of us and to redeem us through death and resurrection, to remake us in his image. Lord, we long for that day when we once again are the people that you designed and made us to be. Lord, help us to look with the eyes of faith to Jesus Christ and receive him. We ask it for his sake. Amen.